Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do up through verse 24 today. And we kind of change directions here a little bit as we continue our study here through the book of Matthew. Because the last few weeks, we've been talking about the power of the proof of Christ being the Messiah. In Matthew 8 and in Matthew chapter 9, there were all these lists of miracles that Jesus did. Power over nature, power over demons, power over sin, etc., death and disease. And it showed that he was the proof and power of being the Messiah. Well, what ends up at the end of Matthew chapter 9 is he talks about sending out laborers into the harvest to be a light and a witness. And that's exactly what he does in Matthew chapter 10. He sends out the twelve, and we're introduced to the twelve apostles. They're sent out on a missionary journey. So what you have here in Matthew chapter 11 is a little bit of an interlude. While the twelve are out on their missionary journey, what is Jesus dealing with? And what comes back is the idea of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist, we talked about him a lot at the beginning of the book of Matthew. We talked about his ministry and the importance of his ministry, and how John was such an amazing man for just pointing people towards Jesus. But what happened was this. John told Herod. Herod was the governmental leader of the area at the time. Herod had decided that he wanted his sister-in-law as his wife. So he basically stole away his sister-in-law from his brother, divorced his wife, and then took her as his own wife. Well, John the Baptist tells Herod, you can't do that. Herod's response is to throw John the Baptist in jail. Now, that is something we've talked about a lot. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we're going through Chronicles, we've talked about this term called a scoffer. A scoffer is somebody who would not listen to truth, would not listen to rebuke, would not listen to correction. They think their way is right and no other way matters. So what happens in the book of Chronicles is every time a prophet comes and tries to correct the king, the king either kills them or just throws them in jail. Same thing happened here with Herod. Herod didn't like what John the Baptist said, so John the Baptist goes in jail. So with that background, John the Baptist is in jail. The twelve were out on a missionary journey. John the Baptist sends a message to Jesus, verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, I'm not going to pick on John the Baptist here. Because we all have moments of, are we sure? We all have moments of, Lord, this is tough. This is difficult to see the big picture. Here's John. You have to remember this from John's perspective. John was really the first megachurch pastor, if you will. He had the successful ministry. People were flocking to him. He had the privilege and the blessing of baptizing the Messiah. He's taking a stand for truth with Herod. And the response to this, thrown in jail, awaiting execution. So he has a moment of, is this right? Is this real? Are you sure? And we all have moments of darkness. We all have moments of, Lord, I I believe you. I believe the word, but I'm really having a hard time seeing the big picture right here. If you've ever struggled with those thoughts, you're in a very good group of people. Elijah struggled with that. Elijah struggled with this so much in 1 Kings 19 that he prayed that he could die. He prayed, Lord, just take my life. Jeremiah and Jeremiah 20 got so frustrated with ministry, so frustrated with what was going on, he said, I will no longer speak about the Lord. And then Peter, at the end of John, in John 21, Peter was so beat up, if you will, from denying Christ, he basically said, I'm going to quit being a disciple, I'm going to quit being an apostle, and I'm going back to fishing. We all have moments of wanting to quit. We all have moments of wanting to give up. We all have moments of wanting to say, I'm done. But the neat thing about this is, The Lord always meets us where we're at, encourages us, and then points us where we're supposed to be. Elijah, Lord, I just want to die. What does Elijah do? He sends angels to minister to him, and he builds him up and encourages him and brings Elisha alongside of him to help him. 
In Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah says, I quit. I'm not going to speak about the Lord anymore. But what happens? There's such a fire in him. He says, I can't. I can't keep silent by what the Lord is doing. In John 21, when Peter says, I'm quitting and going back to fishing, it's completely, utterly fruitless. He catches nothing until what? Jesus shows up and helps him along. So when John the Baptist sends a message, he's saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't yell at him. Jesus says, let me give you my resume. Let me give you the evidence and you make a decision, John. What's the evidence? Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He tells John, you want the evidence? The evidence is chapters 8 and 9. Sin has been defeated. Nature has been defeated. Demons have been defeated. Death and disease have been defeated. He has power over all that. And he says, John, the evidence of me being the Messiah is right there of what I'm doing. And then he says this in verse 6, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He's basically saying, John, can you accept this? Can you accept this or is this going to bother you? Some of your translations say something to the effect of stumble. That you do not stumble because of Christ. That's a really interesting word there where it says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That word offended literally means scandal. We get our English word scandal from that word. This idea of something just so unbelievable, it trips everybody up. It's a scandal that it brings people down. What Jesus is saying is this. If you're going to follow me, if you want to believe in me, it's going to make people trip and stumble. It's going to be a scandal to some people. And he's saying, John, verse 6, can you handle this? Think about this. As a Christian, as soon as you say you're a Christian, so that means you follow the teachings of Christ. As soon as you say you follow the teachings of Christ, you're automatically saying four to five billion people are going to hell. That's quite the little scandal, isn't it? That causes some people to trip and stumble. We live in a world today where we are the minority in so many moral issues. And it's difficult for believers to be the minority. It is. We want to be with the populace. We want to have people like us and accept us. And what happens is some of these things that's coming across that we now say is morally okay, well, the Bible doesn't agree with that. God love them, but it's still sin. And so what Jesus is saying is, are you going to get tripped up because of me? Or are you still going to believe that what I teach is truth? You've heard me say this many times before. There's three truths in the Bible. Jesus is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. God's word is truth. In this world where nobody ever knows what truth is anymore, we have to get back to those three things. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's word. That's the truth we need. Why? Because according to 1 Timothy 4 and end times, the Bible says there's going to be the doctrines of demons. When you hear some of these ideas now out there and what is considered acceptable, and you hear some of these ideas of what is considered right, what are you really hearing? You're hearing the doctrine of demons that is now taking us away from the truth. And what Jesus is saying in verse 6, he says, Guys, are you going to be able to handle this? Are you going to be able to handle following me? Or is it going to be a scandal to you? Is it going to make you stumble? Is it going to trip you up? And we see that a lot. You see a lot of Christians, when you see the world disagree with them, They can't handle that. Jesus says, you have to stick with me. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me and taking a stand for the truth. And then he goes on to talk about John, how John was this strong man. Verse 7, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to seek? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. As surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement. Now, let's talk about why John was so amazing and so great. First off, verse 7. John was what? He was strong. He was not a reed shaken by the wind. He was not a weak man that was blown over by simple things. He was strong, not weak. Number two, verse 8. It says he was not wearing the soft garments. What does that mean? This man was tough. He was not soft. He was a tough guy. He went through a lot. Now, if I would come up to you and say, Describe to me the strongest, toughest man you've ever met. Your description would probably be much different what the Bible calls a strong, tough man. Because when we think of a strong, tough man in society today, we probably think, think of somebody who is very literally physically strong. Very tough physically. From a biblical definition, who's strong, who's tough? John the Baptist. Because he took a stand for truth and he pointed people towards Jesus Christ. That's what made him strong. That's what made him tough. That's why in verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Do you realize the power of that statement? Jesus is saying, at this point, there's not been a human man more powerful, more amazing, more great than John the Baptist. That would include King David, Daniel, Moses, Adam, Noah, we could go down the whole list of these Old Testament people that we rise to this amazing level. And what Jesus is saying, no, John the Baptist is greater than every single one of them. What makes John the Baptist so great? Because he truly just simply did what? Point people towards Christ. When we're first introduced to John, actually when we're first introduced to John, he has a miraculous birth. Angel comes to his father and says, you're going to have a baby. So there is an amazing spiritual beginning to John. But when we see him as an adult at age 30, out there ministering, what is he doing in John 1? He's just pointing people towards Jesus. That's all he's doing is pointing people towards Jesus. In fact, he's pointing people towards Jesus so much that in John 1, when his disciples see Jesus, he tells his disciples, leave me and go follow Christ. Because John was never concerned about his ministry, his numbers. He just wanted people to know Christ. And John 3, he says, I have a joy in people just meeting Jesus. And in John 3, he said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. That's what makes this man so amazing. Pointing people towards Christ. Sending his own disciples to follow Christ. His sole joy in life was to see people get saved. And he was willing to decrease so that way Christ would get all the honor and glory. That's why Jesus said, this man was so amazing. And it was prophesied about this, verse 10. Malachi. See, at the end of the book of Malachi, there's a prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And so what Jesus says, and we talk about this a little bit more in Matthew 17, Jesus says that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah to be a light and a witness for me, to prepare people's hearts to point them towards a real relationship with Christ. There may be a double-fold prophecy in there because in the book of Revelation it talks about the two witnesses. And a lot of people believe that John, excuse me, that uh, Elijah is from those two. But at this point, John's ministry is just to point people towards Jesus. Now, now let that sink in for a second. Ch- change your perspective of what you think of strong and tough is. Because John was strong and tough. Change your perspective of what you think successful is. Because John the Baptist was successful. Even though he's in prison, he's successful. 
Because he pointed people towards Christ. I think what we really need to do as believers is get back to the pure simplicity of what Jesus is saying. We're strong and we're tough when we have our foundation in Christ. And we're doing what we can do when we just point people simply towards Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why John was so great. That's why John was so amazing. But here's the neat thing about it. Look at the end of verse 11. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You're more amazing than John the Baptist. Because what this is saying is John is Old Testament living in New Testament. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets living in the New Testament. See, John died before Christ died on the cross. So John's still in heaven. There's no doubt about that. The blood of Jesus took care of that. But we, living after Christ died, we're saved in faith by believing what Christ did on the cross for us. We're part of the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus says in verse 11 is even the least member in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Because we have the privilege of being part of the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the problem. For 2,000 years, the church has been talking about how amazing it is to be in the kingdom of heaven. You know what that means? We've become desensitized to it. It doesn't carry much to us. 2,000 years ago, if you heard what Jesus said right there, that would be completely, utterly mind-blowing. Nowadays, yeah, I get it. I'm born again. I'm saved. Don't ever let your salvation become common. Don't ever let it just become normal. You are here this morning, and if you're born again and saved, the Holy Spirit has chosen to live in you. God has chosen to live in you. When you read Genesis through Malachi, and you see how God worked in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit dwelt in the Holy of Holies, and only one day a year could you have access to a relationship with God, and only one man could, we are now the Holy of Holies. The Holy Spirit now lives in within us, and not only lives within us, empowers us, leads us, guides us, directs us. problem is we're just used to it now. So as least in the kingdom of heaven... We're still greater than the greatest man that ever was born. But we've lost that focus. Don't ever let Jesus become common to you. Because you'll lose the importance and the joy of what we get to do. We get to tell people about Christ. Why is it so difficult? Verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. See, what Jesus is saying, this amazing information we have... People aren't going to like it. As we mentioned earlier in the message, as soon as you say you're a Christian, you're already saying that four to five billion people aren't saved. Okay, People don't really want to hear that. In the years I've been sharing Christ with people, I've never had one person say, thank you for telling me I'm going to hell. It just doesn't, they don't respond that way. So, Jesus says, there's going to be a violent response to this. Okay, we saw the violent response. John's about to get beheaded in a few chapters. Jesus is going to be crucified a few chapters after that. Stephen and James are going to be martyred in the book of Acts. Beginning of the book of Matthew, Herod is out there killing babies to try to stop the Messiah. That's a lot of violence against the kingdom. And that's going to continue to happen. Because people don't like the message. Just like Herod threw John the Baptist in jail because he didn't like the message, people will not like the message that we present. Now, are we going to still stand for that message? Back to verse 6. Or are we going to become offended by it? Is it going to be easier not to say anything because we don't want to cause any trouble or any problems? It's going to get harder, folks. But are we going to take a stand for the truth? 
See, verses 13 through 15 kind of explain to us a little bit more about John. Once again, Old Testament living in New Testament, verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He comes in that same ministry, the power and the ministry of Elijah. Verse 15, he was ears to hear, let him hear. See, verse 15 is so important. He was ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says, if you're willing to accept this, if you're willing to hear this, then you'll be blessed by that. But if you're not willing to hear it, there's nothing we can do. That verse is amazing. That verse is so freeing. It, it, I've been walking with the Lord for 23 years, and it's only been in the last year, year and a half, I have finally started to understand verse 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How it has to be between them and Jesus. I am just a sign along the road of life pointing people towards Christ. They have to choose to accept it or not. Because years ago, well, just to be honest, my thought was this. There's a marriage in trouble. Give me 20 minutes with them. I can fix that. You got somebody who doesn't know Christ? Let me go out to eat with them. I'll make sure their walk away is saved. Somebody's got Bible questions? Just send them to me. I'll fix it. No, I can't. And it's not this despair. I can't. It's very freeing. I can't. It's between them and the Holy Spirit. If they do not have ears to hear, verse 15, they're not going to hear anything. That's why it's so important in evangelism is to be, yes, to be open about your faith and let the Spirit lead, but to have those prayers of preparation. Lord, prepare their heart. Lord, prepare the soil. We're going to talk here in a few chapters about the parable of the sower and the seeds and what an amazing parable that is. The soil has to be prepared and ready for the seed to grow. We can throw a lot of seeds on concrete and it's not going to grow. The ears have to be open. So if you're ministering to somebody right now, if you're talking to someone right now, and you're reaching this point of frustration, despair, and discouragement, they're not hearing. Well, verse 15, are their ears open? If they're not, pray. And just be a light and a witness when God opens a door. And when you see it from that perspective, all of a sudden it's like, wow, Lord, whoever showed up at 8.30 this morning, I'm just going to love them and tell them about you. Whoever shows up at 10 o'clock, I'm just going to love them and tell them about you. And I'll do the same next Sunday. And I'll do it on Wednesday night. And throughout the week, as the Lord lays somebody on the heart, let's go minister to them. It's just pointing people towards Christ. And when you really look at it from that perspective, wow, Lord, it's so freeing. Because here's the truth. You can't win. You can't make everybody hear. Verse 16. But to whom shall I liken this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He is a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. You ever have that person you just can't please? You heard me mention this before out here. I use what I call the one-third rule. No matter what we do out here at church, no matter what it is, one-third of you will love it, one-third of you will hate it, and one-third of you will not care. That's just the way it is. And I spent so much time and energy trying to convince the one-third that hate it to like it, and the one-third that didn't care to care. You can't. We're just a very fickle group of people, aren't we? And sometimes we don't even know what we're fickle about. Our second youngest son, Layden, when he gets really tired at night, he just gets so completely out of sorts. You'll just see him sitting there, and tears are going down his cheek, and you'll go up to him and say, Layden, what's wrong? And he'll just look at you and say, nothing. Okay, buddy, something's wrong. Is something wrong? Nothing's wrong. Are you hungry? No. Are you thirsty? No. Then what's wrong? I'm hungry. You just told me you weren't hungry. 
You just need to go to bed, buddy. He's just so completely out of sorts, he doesn't even know what he wants. And Jesus says, starting in verses 16 through 19, he goes, Guys, that's what you are. You're like children, verse 16. You're in the marketplace. I come to you in verse 17. Hey, I'll play a song for you. No, we don't want to hear a song. Okay, well then verse 17, I'll mourn with you. No, I don't want to mourn. You don't even know what you want. John comes to you. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. And you say he's demonic. So I come to you. I'm eating. I'm drinking. You call me a glutton and a drunk. I can't win. You want the ultra-spiritual man John. Out in the wilderness. Yeah, but you say he's crazy. So I come to you and I'm just a normal guy walking with you. But you call me a glutton and a drunk. They can't win. You know what? The world is the exact same way. Unless you know Christ... They're never going to find contentment in anything. They're just going to jump from thing to thing to thing. They'll find a brief moment of contentment, but never anything purposeful. Not in any way whatsoever. Elias does this all the time. He gets, finds these free games. And he always asks, Dad, can I download it? So he'll download the game. And for a day or two, it is the greatest thing that's ever existed. The most amazing thing you've ever seen. That's all he talks about. He wants to show me everything. Two days later, guess what? He found the greatest game that's ever existed. And that's all he wants to talk about. And then two days later, he found the greatest game. And it's just, this is what it is. And one of the things we keep trying to tell him is, Elias, godliness with contentment is a great gain. I tell you, I don't know where you're at in life right now. Maybe you're not help, happy with your health situation. Maybe you're not happy with your relationship situations, your work situations, your financial situations. I don't know. But wherever you're at right now, I encourage you to seek the contentmentness of the Lord. Because the scenario you're in, it may be difficult, it may be tough, but there can still be a contentment in that because you have the foundation of Jesus Christ. You're saved. You're born again. You have eternity waiting for you in heaven. Of course there's things in your life that you would like to see different. But there is a blessing in just the contentment. Just the contentment of saying, Lord, I'm yours. And this hand that I've been dealt in life, I believe that you work good in all things. And so I'm just going to trust you in this. Because what Jesus is saying to this generation, you guys will never be content with anything. Boy, that's the world still today. Never content with anything. He goes, but since I'm here, you guys now are responsible though. Because look at verse 20. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom are all Old Testament towns that were judged and destroyed by the Lord. The most famous one we know of is Sodom, where it was destroyed by fire in the book of Genesis. Those towns have been destroyed. Now, what Jesus, though, is saying is now these New Testament towns, Chorazon, Bethsaida, Capernaum, he goes, you guys, you guys are more guilty than those towns. Why? Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters, if you will. What Jesus is saying is, listen, if Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon would have seen what you guys have seen, they would have repented, wouldn't have been destroyed. But you guys have now seen it. You guys are now responsible. And I tell you, your judgment is coming because you have the Messiah right here in front of you and you are rejecting it. There's a responsibility that goes with it. 
And the same thing is still happening with us today. There is a spiritual responsibility in all that we do and all that we say. And I think what happens is, as believers, we don't realize that. The responsibility we have as husband, wife, mother, father, friend, fill in the blank, whatever it is, that you have a ministry and a calling that God has given you. And he says, you have a responsibility for that. A responsibility to say, I want to go deeper in my walk with the Lord. A responsibility to say, I want to be that light and witness for you. We can come up with reasons and excuses left and right, but really what it comes down to is, Lord, I know the truth. And so since I know the truth, am I living the truth? Am I walking in the truth? So put this all together now. We have John the Baptist in moments of darkness and despair saying, Lord, are you real? Are you the real one? Jesus' response, look at the evidence, and you'll see that I am the real one. And he says to John, or about John, I should say, he's tough, he's strong. Why? Because his whole ministry was to point people towards me, and that is what God honors and looks at, because we live in a world that is never going to be content. They're going to keep jumping from thing to thing to thing. We have the answer to point them in the right direction. We have the spiritual answers that they need. I can't make him listen. Verse 15, he has ears to hear, let him hear. They have to choose to accept or not. But am I going to be faithful in presenting the truth? Am I going to be that road sign along the road that is pointing people towards Jesus? Now, I don't know if they're going to follow my directions or not. But I know that I have been faithful in presenting that truth to them. And I've been faithful in saying, Lord, I'm making a stand for you. In this world where morals are going out the window, I'm making a stand for you. No matter what people say, I am going to follow the truth. The truth of the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the truth of God's word. But what happens when we're in that moment of darkness? We're in John the Baptist in jail. We're Elijah wanting to die. We're Jeremiah saying, I quit. Why should I witness anymore? No one at work listens to me. No one at home listens to me. And we're Peter in John 21 that says, hey, I tried the Jesus thing for a while. It didn't work out. I'm going back. Let's talk about that for a while. Let's finish up with this. Can you go to Psalm 88? I got two Psalms I want to share with you as we get ready to close. Psalm 88. Let's talk about that moment of despair and darkness. We hear all this. And you may be saying, James, I get it. I believe it. But my life right now is tough. I want to be like Elijah. I just want to be done. I want to be like Jeremiah. I just want to quit. I want to be like Peter. It was easier to not walk in righteousness. Well, let's look at the honesty of the Psalms. Psalms are some of the most honest books in the Bible. When they were having a rough time, they didn't try to hide it. Look at Psalm 88. Let's start in verse 13. Tell me if this does not describe sometimes the season of life that you have been in. Verse 13, Psalm 88. But to you I have cried out, O Lord... And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I've been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They come around me all day like like water. They engulf me altogether. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. That's an honesty right there. And that's an honesty of what some of us have been through at some time or another. I mean, same chapter. Jump back to verse 3. My soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. I am counted with those who have gone down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength adrift among the dead. Wow. That's the difficulties and the darkness of life. Now, that's the honesty of Psalms. 
Okay, if you're there right now, maybe it's a health issue, a job issue, a relationship issue, maybe just a spiritual darkness issue. Okay, are you going to stay there? So you can stay there if you want. It goes back once again to verse 15 of Matthew 11. He is ears to hear, let him hear. But I want to encourage you to get out of the pit. I want to encourage you to say that nothing good is in staying there. That's the reality of what life is. Okay, so what are we going to do with that reality? Stay in Psalms. Go to Psalm 10, please. The reality is life is extremely difficult, and there's sometimes that it's just absolutely awful. I heard a great teaching recently where it's talking about the shield of faith. And they talked about what does a shield do? Well, shield is your defensive weapon. When somebody's shooting arrows at you or trying to swing a sword at you, you put your shield up and what do you do? You hide behind the shield. And this pastor made a comment. He goes, sometimes in life, there's so many arrows shot at you. There's so many swords being thrown at you and swung at you. The only thing you can do is hide behind your shield and just wait till the war's over. There's a lot of truth to that. That's Psalm 88. It is awful. It is difficult. It is tough. What do I do with this information? Well, let's go to Psalm 10. Psalm 10 starts out the same way. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Verse 1. Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boast of his heart's desire. Have you ever thought that, verse 1? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? I pray, it doesn't feel like the Lord's answering. I read the Bible, I get nothing out of it. I go to church and there's an emptiness. Lord, why does it feel so empty? What am I supposed to do with that? Same psalm, jump ahead to verse 13. Excuse me, verse 14. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Look at verse 14. You have seen, for you observe trouble and grief. The Lord sees. The Lord sees. Now, there's a couple points that go with this. Number one, I can't make you believe that the Lord sees the trouble you're in. Because sometimes you convince yourself that no one sees and cares or understands. And God has turned your back on you. No, that's not what the scripture says. The Lord sees. He knows. So why isn't he doing anything? Well, what do you want him to do? Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Some of you are saying yes. I have a list of people. I would like to see their arms broken. That's not literally what we're talking about. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. See, what is the Lord doing? When you don't feel that he is doing anything, verse 17, he hears you. I can't make you believe it, but he hears you. Number two, what is he doing? He's preparing your heart. He's preparing your heart. There's a great psalm, Psalm 115, where it talks about behind the scenes of what was going on in Joseph's life. If you remember the story of Joseph, very simply put, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. Joseph was then bought as a slave and went to Egypt. And he was then accused of a crime he did not commit. He was accused of rape. He was then thrown into prison. Now, this man that did nothing wrong has now been sold as a slave, convicted of rape, and he's now in prison. Why? Psalm 115 says that the Lord was preparing his heart. When Joseph got out of prison, what did he do? He became second in charge of Egypt. God used that time to prepare his heart. Right now, you're in a difficult time. What is the Lord doing? Verse 17, he is preparing your heart. Now, it's not fun, is it? It's not fun in any way whatsoever. But it's a time of preparation. You will cause your ear to hear. He does listen to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may be pressed no more. 
See, in the times of trouble, what do we need to believe? Verse 14, God does see. God does observe. Verse 16, God is king. Verse 17, God does hear. God is preparing your heart. And God will respond. You're going to have John the Baptist moments of where you're sitting there in the darkness of the dungeon wondering what if. But you also need to stop and realize God will answer and he will point you in the right direction. He will say there is a purpose to what I'm doing. You may not see it now. You may not get it. You may not understand it. But I am preparing your heart. Because John did nothing wrong. He stood for the truth. He pointed people towards Jesus. He's the greatest human that ever lived. And where did that get him? Beheaded. But God says, I'm going to use this. And I just want to encourage you right now in the darkness of what you're going through. Look back on these guys. John, Elijah, Jeremiah, Peter. They all had moments of wanting to quit. And Jesus said, trust me guys. I'll see you through this. And the Lord was faithful. And the beautiful part about this is what? He has ears to hear. Let him hear. Boy, oh boy, guys. Just open your ears and, and just listen to what the Lord is doing. There's a great verse in Psalms that I love. It says, open my eyes, Lord, that I may see your wondrous works. Boy, open your eyes and ears to see what the Lord is doing and to hear what the Lord is doing. It's pretty dark right now for some of you. But trust that he's moving and working in ways that you'll never understand possibly right now. But you'll see the big picture later on, I hope. Let's pray. Worship team from Comfort here. Let's pray this into our lives.